saw an interesting uh, news piece on uh, cbc.ca this week. It was uh, actually a story from back my wife's old neck of the woods. Uh, a mother in Harrow, Ontario, just outside of Windsor, who had to call uh, the Children's Aid Society on herself because of her most recent parenting tactic, because of the reaction she had received from her most recent parenting strategy. Apparently, um, this mom had received a phone call from her kid's school. They were in elementary school kids, and the principal had called the mom and had said that her kids had been kind of disrespectful and rude on the bus. And the, and the principal said that if that kind of behavior continued, you know, they weren't going to be allowed to continue to ride the bus. And this woman had just had enough. So the next morning when her kids got up, she dressed them all ready for school and then told them that they would not be taking the bus to school. And she marched them seven kilometers, two hours through a March winter to get to school. Now, it wasn't even the, the seven-hour or the seven-hour, the two-hour march to school that uh, had bothered people. It wasn't even the sign that she had made her kids carry that said, we were bad and rude on the bus and now mom's making us walk. It was the fact that she had posted the story to Facebook it had been shared about 40,000 times, had gotten 30,000 reactions, dozens and dozens of comments, some supportive, some critical, and some threatening to call the Children Aid Society. And so she called the society themselves and said, listen, I'm going to just tell you my side of the story before somebody calls me in or whatever. And they, they interviewed, CBC interviewed the children's aid worker who said, you know, the, the march to school could even, if it's done safely, be a logical punishment for that sort of behavior. And the sign is probably not a great idea, but she said, posting the whole thing to Facebook, that's where it crosses a line because, and this was the quote that caught my attention, because shame does not motivate the kind of behavior we want in children. When shame is the motivation you don't get the kind of behavior you want. That struck me this week as I thought about the story that we're going to look at this morning in this Stories of the Cross series. Because this morning we're digging into the deepest, outside of the death of Jesus himself, the deepest, darkest thread in this entire passage of scripture, which is the story of Judas. The story of Judas begins in uh, Matthew 26, verse 14, where it says this. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Matthew starts the story on a tragic note, pointing out immediately that it was one of the 12 who had betrayed Jesus. 
that one of Jesus' closest allies, one of his most intimate friends, had proactively gone to the chief priests and the elders and had asked them, what would you give me if I show you where Jesus is, if I identify him for you, and if I do it discreetly so as to not arouse suspicion with the crowds of what's going on, what would you give me for the head of Jesus? It says they counted out 30 silver coins. It's hard to know how much money that is. All the coins beyond a certain point were silver. It could have been as little as one month's pay for a, a minimum wage farm laborer, maybe 3,500 bucks in our terms. Maybe as much as four times that amount, about $14,000, which is, you know, that's some decent money, but it's not going to change anybody's life. My suspicion is the reason that Matthew says 30 silver coins instead of telling us which denomination it is, is because in the Jewish law, 30 silver coins was the minimum price for which you could sell a slave. Judas goes to the chief priests and the elders to sell his master for the smallest price you could pay for a slave. And then, of course, as we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, Judas makes good on his word down in verse 47. It says that Jesus had eaten with his disciples. They had had the Passover meal, ate the last supper together. They left the city, went outside of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane where they were going to pray. And as they finished, it says this, verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Judas arranges this signal, he will betray Jesus with a kiss. A sign of solidarity among brothers, a sign of love. It's a sign of submission and respect of an inferior to their superior. For Judas, it was a signal that this is the man the temple guard needed to arrest. He greets Jesus with this enthusiastic greeting. Greetings, Rabbi. The word greetings in Greek is the Greek version of the word shalom, which means peace be on you, well-being to you. Ironic since he's selling Jesus out to his death. And Jesus is arrested. It's impossible to know why Judas made the decision that he did. Lots of people have speculated. The, the gospel, according to John, says that Judas was the treasurer of the group and that he had sticky fingers. He was a thief. He took money out of the bag. And John implies that when Judas saw the woman who anointed Jesus with like $45,000 worth of perfume, he was so enraged at the loss of potential income that he went and sold Jesus out. Some say it was greed. Some say Judas was disillusioned with Jesus. 
It was becoming increasingly clear that Jesus was not going to be the kind of Messiah that Judas was hoping that Jesus would be a nationalistic military hero who would lead an army to throw off the oppression of Rome and set Israel free. In fact, lately Jesus had been talking with these defeatist tones like he's going like to die. And Judas didn't want to back a loser. We don't know. Some have said that maybe Judas had positive motivations, that he wanted to arrange a constructive dialogue between the chief priests and Jesus, but he knew that there was no way to get them into the same room except through something like this. Or maybe Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. He was too reluctant to step forward and claim to be the Messiah. And so if Judas could get him arrested, maybe he could force him into a corner. You just never know. Some people say that Judas is a hero because he got God's plan of salvation in motion. I I think when you read the New Testament, the one thing you have to concede, both Luke and John say that at one point, evil enters into Judas. That whatever it is that motivated Judas to do what he did, it was motivated By pure evil. And as soon as Judas did it, almost immediately, he comes to regret it. In Matthew 27 verse 3, it says this, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. It says that as soon as Judas saw the impact of his decision that Jesus had been arrested and condemned to die, he was seized with remorse. I think Matthew wants us to understand that Judas experienced a genuine repentance. Now the word that he uses is is not the normal word for repentance. It, it, it does mean remorse, that he felt very sorry for what he had done and that he, he, it was a painful thing and he wished that things could be differently. But because it's not the usual word for repentance, there are people who say Judas felt bad, but he didn't repent. I don't believe that's true. Matthew uses the same word when he talks about the preaching of John the Baptist. He says John the Baptist was preaching for the repentance of Israel. It's exactly this word. Judas confesses his sin. He owns it. He says, I have sinned. He doesn't try and avoid responsibility. He doesn't evade the consequences. He doesn't shift blame or blame the circumstances. He acknowledges Jesus' innocence and his own guilt. And then Judas tries to make it right. The reason he goes back to the chief priests and the elders is he's trying to get them to reverse their decision. He's trying to withdraw his testimony. He's trying to get them to, um, to, to uh, cancel the verdict on Jesus. He's trying to give back the money to, to make the whole thing go away. I think Judas experiences this genuine moment of repentance for the choice that he made but he doesn't get any sympathy back from the religious leaders. At the end of verse four, it says, what is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. And so Judas threw the money into the temple 
and left. Judas goes in this fit of remorse. It gripped with repentance, confessing his sin, trying to make things right. And he encounters only calloused indifference from the religious leaders. Callous indifference to Jesus. He, Judas calls Jesus innocent. They don't dispute that fact. He experiences callous indifference to himself. He says, I've made a horrible mistake. And they're like, we don't care. That's your problem, not ours. You deal with it, not us. And he throws the money at them in anger. And he storms out of the temple and wanders out into the darkness and now is completely helpless. He's alone. He's afraid. He's gripped with remorse and emotional agony. And yet the, the chain of events that he has put in motion can now no longer be stopped. The only thing Judas can do is stew on the decision that he's made. Turn it over and over in his mind. Continue to remind himself. Meditate on his failures, on what he's done, the ways that he's betrayed his Lord. He sinks into this darkness, living his own personal hell. He is living the reality of what Jesus predicted in Matthew 26, 24, where Jesus says this, the son of man, Jesus, will go to his death as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Some people read that statement as sort of a heavenly condemnation, an eternal condemnation from Jesus. God is going to make that person pay. I don't think that's how you have to read this. When you read in other spots in the scriptures, when people say it was better that I wasn't born, what that always communicates is, I wish that, I, given how things have gone, I wish I had never been born. Judas is living inside of his own personal hell where he wishes that he had never been born. And face, he thinks, with no other options, it says at the end of verse five, that he went away and hanged himself. Maybe being part of an honor-shame culture, Judas believed that the only honorable thing for him to do, having cost Jesus his life, is to take his own life. Maybe Judas was trying to... Uh, sentence himself to the punishment that the Jewish law says comes to somebody who had done what he had done. In, in Deuteronomy 27, 25, it says, cursed is anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. Judas had gone to the chief priests and the elders to confess that this is what he had done. And they refused to hear his testimony. They refused to convict him and they refused to sentence him. And maybe Judas was going to sentence himself to his just penalty under the law in his mind. Maybe in the blackness of hopelessness, Judas just believed there was no longer any reason to live. But Judas 
confronted with his failure and the chain of events that that set in motion can think of no other way to respond than to take his own life. And as I read this story and wrestle with it, the thing that strikes me is both how similar it is to the story of Peter and how wildly different. As you read this entire passage, the story of Judas and the story of Peter happen in exact parallel all the way along. That Jesus predicts to Judas that he'll betray him. He predicts to Peter that Peter will deny him. Then Judas betrays him and Peter denies him. And then Judas and Peter are both gripped with remorse and um, enter into or experience this sort of genuine repentance. And from that moment on, their stories are completely different. Peter goes on to become this church leader, a writer of scripture, a martyr who dies for his devotion to Jesus. Judas goes and takes his own life. And I began to ask myself the question, what is the difference between Judas and Peter? And the difference, I believe, is the power of shame. I believe that Judas chose the pathway of shame. See, shame lives in the gap between what we wish was true and what is actually true. Shame is what lives in the gap of our failure, the ways in which we have created the circumstances that we're now living in. Shame is born in that space where we continue to ruminate on and reflect on our own shortcomings, where we refuse to let ourselves off the hook, where we refuse to forgive ourselves. And slowly inside of us, this shift begins to take place that starts with, I have done something terrible and ends up with, I am something terrible. I am unlovable and unredeemable, and I don't know why God or anyone else would want to have anything to do with me. It is a powerfully destructive force. Shame has the power to turn off all of our positive experience in life. Shame has the power to turn off our ability to think rationally and to make reasonable choices about our life. Shame has the power to turn on our worst impulses and to make us violent towards ourselves and towards the people around us. And I think that there are people in our community, probably all of us, some of the, uh, some of the time, and some of us almost all of the time who battle with shame, who've come to believe not that you have done something terrible, but that you are something terrible, unlovable and unredeemable, and you have a hard time imagining why God or anyone else would want to have anything to do with you. For some of us, that manifests itself in patterns of our life that look like self loathing, where we hate ourselves. We hate 
We feel inferior. We feel like no one should want to have anything to do with us. And so we begin to withdraw from relationships and communities of faith because we, we want to just avoid anything that's going to trigger another battle with shame. And yet withdrawing from community of faith, you know, triggers more shame and we feel worse about ourselves and we just get caught in this endless cycle of I am unlovable, unredeemable, and neither God nor anyone else should want to have anything to do with me. We begin to believe that we are something horrible. For others of us, shame can manifest itself in what appears to be the opposite way. Not in self-loathing, but in self-promotion. Um, because we are afraid that we are failures and unlovable and unredeemable, we commit to working 10 times harder than anybody else to prove that we are worthy of people's love, that we are worthy of God's love. We read our Bible 10 times more than everybody else. We learn and we know the scriptures more, 10 times more than everybody else. We try to prove that we're right 10 times harder than everybody else. We pray 10 times more than everybody else. We confess our sins 10 times more than everybody else. Else. We work on our character flaws 10 times more than everybody else. We volunteer 10 times more than everybody else. We just want to show the world that we are worthy to be loved. And somehow in the process, we slip into this sort of spiritual perfectionism that can never rest when it comes to ourselves and that slides into a judgmentalism with respect to everybody else. See, if I'm afraid that I'm a failure, that I'm not worthy of love, then one of the ways I fight off that feeling is to prove to myself and to God and to everybody else that at least I'm superior to these people. I'm more worthy of love than they are. And it can slip into this self-righteous judgmentalism where all you do is attack and criticize and complain about everything that everybody else is doing but it's all coming from shame I believe the difference between Peter and Judas at the end of the day is that Judas allowed his soul to slip into shame and when he did he lost sight of just how much Jesus loves him See, I went back through the whole story again as I started to think about this to look at the way Judas related to Jesus and in comparison to the way that Jesus related to Judas, right? Judas offers to go and sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Do you know what Jesus does next? He invites Judas to dinner and seats him nice and close to himself, so close that they're sharing the same dishes. It's a seat of honor, it's an act of intimacy and acceptance and friendship. At dinner, Jesus knows exactly what Judas has agreed to do and even quietly calls Judas out on it. He lets Judas know that he knows what Judas is about to do, but he doesn't shame him in front of the group. He doesn't say, guys, one of you is about to betray me. It's Judas, get him so that he can't you know, stop him. Like, don't let him... No, he confronts Judas quietly to say, you have a choice here. And then he serves Judas the Lord's Supper. He invites Judas, this friend who will stab him in the back within hours, 
He invites Judas to celebrate with him the love and forgiveness and transformation that can be his because of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. The healing and restoration that will come because of the death that Jesus is about to die. Think of it. Judas has agreed to betray Jesus and Jesus welcomes him to the table and serves him the Lord's Supper. Two times in the story, Judas calls Jesus rabbi. No one else in the gospel of Matthew calls Jesus rabbi. Outsiders call him teacher, which is a term of greater respect. His disciples call him Lord or master. Judas alone is so much of an outsider, has so much distance between him and Jesus. Judas alone calls him rabbi. Do you know what Jesus calls Judas in the story? He calls him friend. Jesus is only ever postured towards Judas in love and in forgiveness. I believe to the core of my being that Jesus forgave Judas, that one day we will meet Judas in eternity in the presence of God. Because Judas confesses his sin. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The only other time in the gospel of Matthew, that phrase, I have sinned, the only other place that appears is in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus says to his disciples, guess what, fellas? There are going to be times when someone sins against you in those moments. Uh, Forgive and reconcile. And Peter says, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, how about 77 times? How about 777 times? How about 777,000 times? How about forgiveness knows no limit? I believe that Jesus' posture towards Judas was always only forgiveness. But because of Judas' shame, he couldn't see it. St. Augustine said, Judas doubted the mercy of God and lost the opportunity for godly sorrow in his soul. And I fundamentally disagree. Judas doubted the mercy of God. There's no question. And that's why he took his own life. I think, A, doubt is not a sin. B, Repentance is the only thing that's required for forgiveness and Judas experienced genuine repentance. I think just because Judas doubted the size of God's mercy doesn't mean that God's mercy wasn't big enough to forgive Judas. And this is the point, friends. That some of us are finding ourselves in a spiritual space that at times can feel as dark as what Judas is going through because some of us have allowed shame to block the reality of the love of Jesus in our life. The fact that Jesus has never and will never give up on you. Jesus doesn't love some idealized, perfect version of you. Jesus doesn't love some version of you that you would be if you could just get your act together. That's not who Jesus loves. Jesus loves the you, you, just the way you are. Jesus loves you, faults and failures and flaws and everything. You are not inferior or unlovable or unredeemable. Jesus is only ever always postured towards you in openness and acceptance and love and forgiveness. And he is waiting for you to receive it from him. Jesus is only ever postured towards you in forgiveness. 
That if we come, like we talked about last week, in the humility of recognizing the brokenness in our lives and the honesty of repentance that says, God, I need your forgiveness and your transformation. I need your healing and your restoration. I need you to wipe my slate clean and make me into something new. That Jesus only ever always says yes to that. See, those who write about shame say that the only antidotes to shame are number one, to come to realize that the very human, flawed, imperfect version of you, the only you you will ever be, is lovable. That that you is okay. And the way for you to know that that you is okay is for you to know that Jesus says that that you is okay. And the only way for shame to be diffused in your life is for you to enter into a mutual embrace of love and acceptance and forgiveness with somebody who embraces you just as you are, which is precisely what happens at the communion table. Where Jesus invites us to eat with him to celebrate the forgiveness and transformation, the healing and restoration that flows from what he did on the cross, where he invites us to celebrate the way his love is knitting us together as a community in acceptance and mutual embrace so that we become the kind of community that lives in and lives out of a radiating love of God, where we come to celebrate what Jesus is going to do when one day he will usher us into the kingdom of God fully, finally, freely, and forever to be in the presence of God for all of eternity. And that's what I am inviting you to experience right now. Band is going to come to the stage. There are communion stations set up around the room. It's going to be explained in just a minute how this works, uh, where you are watching But as we go into this closing time of worship, accept the invitation of Jesus to come to the table. And as you receive the bread and the juice, accept it as the open embrace of Jesus who is saying to you, I love you just the way you are. You are not too broken or flawed. You are not a failure. I have forgiven you and I welcome you just as you are into a relationship with me. Come and receive the embrace of Jesus. Let's pray today. Heavenly Father, I wish that we could see your love for us the way you experience your love for us. I wish that you would open our eyes so that we could see the vastness and the wideness of your mercy and grace. I pray that we would know how loved we are. And I pray that we would see it 
in the truth that you sent your son for us and his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could experience the life and the love that you want to pour into us. So send your spirit now on this time in this place, on these next few minutes, on these songs, on this experience at the table. And would you fill our shame-filled hearts with your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.